Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I am your host, Nick Barksdale, and today we are joined by Dr. Kyle Lincoln to guide us in our series on heroes or villains of medieval Iberia. I think you are going to absolutely love this episode. And without further ado, Dr. Lincoln, firstly, thank you for coming on the show. And secondly, who are we going to be discussing today? Thanks for having me, Nick. Um, it's always nice to uh, to set a research paper and all of its thousand footnotes to one side uh, for a little while and, and come on and talk to people. We've been all deprived, so many of us, from the experience of being able to teach in a classroom. Um, and it's, it's hard to win teaching awards when you're on Zoom all day. So this is at least a, a little bit different environment, um, which is appropriate for us to start. So in 1162, there's this guy that just wanders down from the mountains, which is entirely reasonable. The mountains are, are plentiful in Iberia, as our introductory video noted. And he, he wanders down wearing like tatters of armor, armor that used to be cool and used to be shiny and, and excellent. Um, he's missing a few teeth. He's a little bit draggled. And he starts to tell people, I'm, at, I'm, not, I'm not just some random old guy. I'm Alfonso el Batallador. Now, it should be noted that, that Alfonso the Battler had been dead for a generation or two by this point. He, he was very, very, very dead. Uh, and his tomb had, had long sat in its, its important spot in the cathedral. So why was an old man claiming to be Alfonso the Babbler? On the one hand, we might expect, well, okay, this is just a guy that got bonked on the head. He's a little old. He's a little senile. He doesn't have 15 golf courses to play 18 holes every day. So he's going to pretend to be the king. Why not? Unfortunately, the king he chose to pretend to be wasn't exactly a normal subject. And very quickly, a number of people, especially townsfolk in, in the, the region uh, whence he, he came, started to rally to his banner. People actually thought that this old guy might be a king that had been dead for a while. Unfortunately, of course, the historical sources don't tell us exactly who he was, nor exactly where he came from, nor exactly why he decided to start pretending to be Alfonso the Battler. But the careful work of historians working on both the, the individual charges, the tax records and land deeds, as well as the narrative sources, give us some interesting clues. First, it seems that he was in charge of leading a kind of rebellion in this period, that, that he was provoked to lead a kind of separatist war. If we like, we can think of him as a kind of early 12th century Perkin Warbeck, a random townsman that had been put up to a, a big and provocative task to split one part of the kingdom off from another. But why? In short, the answer is that some of the nobles in and around these towns didn't particularly like the way a messy political problem had been solved. You see, Alfonso the Battler, when he died, died without any legitimate sons, died without a wife who was pregnant that we could then say, ah, well, here, a son is can be expected, as, as was the case, of course, with Alexander the Great and Alexander Postumus. And to make matters even worse, he didn't will the kingdom to a brother or a cousin or a nephew or even an uncle, someone to whom kingship could traditionally be passed in the Iberian context. This, this happens a lot, actually. We have brothers and nephews inheriting the throne. And Lucy Pick, in her most recent book, uh, Her Father's Daughter, has actually shown the way that, that women played an important role as pivot points, political action uh, points where, where they could really kind of help swing the balance of power one way or the other. No, Alfonso decided instead after a lifetime of attempted conquests, only a few of which were successful, but many of which were nevertheless dramatic, that he would leave his entire kingdom 
to two military orders that very few people in his kingdom had ever actually heard of. He, instead of leaving his properties to a nephew, to a cousin, even to another nobleman, decided that the orders of the hospital and the temple, who had at this point very few even outposts, not even a, a priory or an individual house, but very few even outposts for recruiting in his kingdom. So that presents a bit of a problem. It presented a bit of a problem that with a, a few interesting chess moves, Alfonso's brother, Ramiro, who was a monk, was brought out of uh, seclusion. The daughter of a uh, Catalan nobleman um, was married to Ramiro and their son, Alfonso II, who is king at the time the old man wanders down from the mountain, eventually inherits the throne, but not without making a lot of nobles particularly anxious about A, the political reorientation of the entire kingdom from the mountainous kingdoms down towards Barcelona, but also about their own fortunes in this process of pivoting the kingdom from one region and its focuses to another. No longer were, were the pastoral activities and farming of the high mountains particularly predominant in the kingdom's economy. Instead, maritime commerce was becoming more important. So in some ways, we can see the old man wandering down from the mountains as the last gasp of an old way of life, of the last gasp of a nobility attempting to cling on to its power. But why would they choose Alfonso the Battler? What made him evocative? What made him a hero that people could rally to in part? All of this is, is a story of another messy succession. If you're hearing a theme, Nick, that's because medieval Liberia's got lots of messy successions. But this one actually is a little bit more interesting. See, Alfonso the Battler is an illegitimate son of a Navarrese king. Sancho III of Navarre had this enormous kingdom, and any map that shows you the extent of his territories will really make you stop and question, wait a minute, isn't Navarre the Basque kingdom? The Basques were in charge of most of northern Iberia? And the short answer is kind of, right? Political maps are always a little bit untrue, right? It'll show you where the extent of territories that were nominally loyal to one king or another were supposed to be. But of course, the degree of loyalty, how many troops you could muster if you're playing Crusader Kings 3 or 2 if you're a throwback fan, you do you. There are enough places where we can really see these boundaries as being messy. And Alfonso, the battler, as a son of Sancho III of Navarre, was inheriting one section of his kingdom. You see, Iberian kings frequently practiced what, what is often referred to as partable inheritance, right? They divided their kingdom amongst their sons, providing different counties and territories. On the one hand, Alfonso inherited Navarre and Aragon the two mountainous kingdoms in the northeast of the peninsula. The older, his older brother, Peter, was responsible for a number of inherited populations uh, that were really kind of building a lot of territory. And, and Per, as he's often referred to as Per the First, um, really kind of set this kingdom into motion before Alfonso had inherited it. Problematically, though, if you're an illegitimate son of a previous king, you need a little street cred. And one of the ways that normally this would be achieved in the Iberian Peninsula is with strategic marriages to other kingdoms. Now, in the time of Alfonso's father, this could also be um, with daughters or, or aunts um, being married off uh, to the, the late stage Umayyad Caliphate. In fact, there's a, a number of, um, of Iberian uh, rulers in the Umayyad context that are certainly descended from Basque princesses who had been imported as part of a kind of mutual hostage-taking via marriage alliances that occurred across the confessional boundaries of the peninsula. But all of this work that Peter had done, all of these populating efforts, all of this colonization, right, internal colonization in the peninsula 
really gave them a foothold so that when Alfonso did marry, in this case, marrying Uraca, uh, the queen of, of Leon, who herself had come to power in a messy succession process, really kind of creates this tension. Now, Alfonso does a number of things early on in his marriage to Uraca that might seem like he's overplaying his hand. In the first place, he attempts to control much of her kingdom, really pushing the boundaries into what he can get away with. Ideally, this is so that he can either make war against the county of Barcelona to his east, or possibly against some of the early breakaway kingdoms that were already starting uh, to form in the aftermath of the dissolution of the Umayyad Caliphate in the previous century. Those Taifa kingdoms were rich prizes, and the ability to manipulate some of them into paying a, a kind of mercenary payment for an uh, exchange for troops, which is often referred to as the parias, P-A-R-I-A-S payments, where Taifa kingdoms would send large amounts of money to the north in exchange for a kind of standing order for mercenaries from the Christian kingdoms to come down and serve uh, in their own efforts. Now, sometimes this could be enormously profitable. Uh, Fernando I, uh, the king of Castile and Leon, is alleged to have paid a thousand gold coins to the Abbey of Cluny every year and is often re regarded as, as one of the sort of second wave founder patrons of Cluny for that reason, that this contribution was an enormous annual tribute. Now, those, those parias payments could also fund enormous amounts of construction. They could also fund repopulations. And sometimes they had so bankrupted territories that kings like, for example, Alfonso VI of Leon could annex the city of Toledo, conquest without ever unsheathing a sword, because kings were willing to trade property in exchange for their own security. Enter the kind of figure like Alfonso the Battler, whose brother had done so much to build up his own resources. He's now married to the most powerful queen, probably the most powerful Christian monarch in the peninsula at the time. Things should be great, right? Unfortunately, they get along worse than Eleanor of Aquitaine and Henry II, um, which is fortunate because eventually uh, one of a couple of their descendants will marry into that family. So, you know, dysfunction's uh, not all that unusual. They get along so poorly that a civil war breaks out between 1113 and 1117. It's enormously damaging. The city of Burgos, uh, a kind of, of linchpin in the Castilian Northern Kingdom's defensive ring was taken by Alfonso the Battler. And the bishops of Burgos in their own historical catalogs actually note that the city was completely lost. Um, it of course wasn't, this is historical hyperbole and our historical sources will lie to us, but when we know why they're lying, uh, we can often use that as an important clue. In this case, what they mean by completely lost was that it was completely controlled by the Aragono Navarrese faction led by Alfonso the Battler. Okay, so he's fought a civil war. He's broken away from his uh, now ex-wife. You would think the next step would be to get remarried, that he would, he would go on to get things done. But he doesn't. Instead, he starts paying more and more attention to the fact that there is a territory due south of Aragon and Navarra that is now not only very wealthy, but also becoming weak uh, from its own political wars in its allies to the south and east. And these are the, the, the Banu Hud of Zaragoza, uh, a, a kingdom and a family that had ruled this um, region, which is often referred to as Upper Marches, the Rioja Valley, um, famous, of course, for its delicious wine, um, but also generally a, a wonderful place to visit once the world opens back up. There are a number of ways that Zaragoza presents an enormous prize. 
both for medieval Christians who were aware that it used to be called Caesar Augusta, um, that is to say a Roman provincial capital um, founded nominally um, by the emperors, but of course never actually founded by the emperors themselves, but also because Zaragoza represented an enormous linchpin in hold over much of the lower valley, an incredibly wealthy and prosperous agricultural region. Moreover, the ability to extract taifa payments from a kingdom was one way to start bleeding dry their resources. And when payments were no longer forthcoming, conquest certainly could be. Of course, 1118, uh, when, when these first set of, of conquests are, are really inaugurated, is a period of considerable change in the medieval Mediterranean world. We're now issuing into the second generation of Crusades, uh, of course, launched in 1095 um, and eventually successful in 1098 and 1099 in conquering Antioch and Jerusalem. By 1118, the Crusader states in the East have gotten a foothold and second wave campaigns led, for example, by the Venetians in their attempt to conquer Tyre and Sigurd of Norway and his peculiar but nevertheless interesting attempts to campaign to the south. Of course, there were campaigns in the, the western edge of the peninsula as well, um, culminating in a number of, of usually disastrous defeats. But all of this gives us a kind of backdrop for why now, if there's not as much money and there's now more spiritual rewards, if we can start to really kind of generate a lot of in inertia towards an eventual conquest of Zaragoza, we can really kind of see Alfonso the Battler as a figure who's very much of his age, right? This is, this is a guy who's hip and with the contemporary rulership trends. If you can't get money, maybe get a little crusading done. And of course, we shouldn't underestimate the religiosity too. This is, of course, a pilgrimage, an armed pilgrimage, and getting an 1118 crusade bull that really says, hey, conquering Zaragoza will count is, is a powerful motivator for medieval kings. Moreover, a number of Alfonso's own nobility, as well as his own house, were tied to the, the nobles of Southern France, right? As Alexander Junta has recently shown, there's a ton of mid and upper mid tier aristocratic and bourgeois links between the people that are populating these new towns that Alfonso's brother Pedro had founded before him, but which also have a role to play in the repopulating the colonization of these upper regions. So we've got economic incentives, we've got religious incentives, now we've got a political and military incentive. Unfortunately, conquering Zaragoza is not an easy thing. Uh, although it's, it's early modern and late medieval walls and fortifications are certainly impressive, and a shot from the river, especially of the Pilar Cathedral in the background, mwah, beautiful. But in the period, it was even more formidable, in part because its fortifications resting on earlier Roman edifices, plus the Banu Hood's constructions, had only added strength to strength. One of the early indicators of Alfonso's attempts to take Zaragoza is that he constructs a counterfort, a, a place where he can concentrate his soldiers, overlook the city, and possibly lay, uh, lay in a later siege after leading a couple of lightning cavalry raids, the famous Iberian Cabalhaba. The name of this fortress uh, is in, in modern Catalan and modern regional dialect, Huislibol. Huislibol sounds like a ridiculous name. It sounds like the name of some preposterous grain that you heat up in the microwave and it's somehow a superfood breakfast. But it's actually a corruption of the old high Catalan Deus Volt, which is, of course, the corruption of the, the Eastern crusading mantra Deus Volt, right? Latin for, for God wants it or God wills it. Um, of course, Huislibol itself is not a particularly impressive fortification, 
but it's really functional. And it serves as a kind of attempt to really push down into Zaragoza. Now you would think, okay, if he's built a counter fort, if this is all starting in like 1118, he's got a lot of momentum on his side and he's definitely going to be able to make it happen. But it no, it takes almost 16 years. And the reason it takes 16 years is the Banu Hood are not alone anymore. And the Taifikin is not alone anymore. See, unbeknownst to Alfonso of Aragon, although perhaps he might have heard rumors about it, in Western Morocco, a group of, of tribes from the, the wider ethnic group called the Sanhaja, uh, a series of macro tribal affiliations, the Sanhaja Berber uh, tribes um, are really getting organized. And one of the ways they're getting organized is by a group of, of radical tax reformers, um, to be quite fair about what they're about, uh, called the Al-Murabids, the Al-Murabitun in Arabic, the, the, the Murabit builders, um, are really getting organized. They're getting organized and saying, look, we're no longer going to pay any taxes that aren't in the Quran. We're going to do everything by the book. We're going to be really straightforward, really, really strict, really prosperous. We're not going to do any of this, this Taifa Kingdom poetry nonsense. We're not going to like, yeah, science is cool, guys, but like, here are the rules. Let's follow the rules. Now, this doesn't sound all that big of a deal, right? Okay, well, they're tax reformers. But with this last name especially, I can tell you that sometimes a tax revolt turns into something else. And although there are rare occasions where a little bit of calligraphy on parchment does anything more than, you know, letting us shoot off some fireworks a couple centuries later, revolutions have been founded on much less. And the Almoravids are not just a tax revolution. They also start very quickly saying, look, if you're not going to go by the book, if you're not going to be good Muslims, Taifa kingdoms, then we're going to come and take over because we've got a much better way of doing this. We're going to guarantee more people get into heaven. We're going to guarantee a better ordered society. And as a result, the Almoravids quickly expand uh, from their Maghrebi base in, in Morocco in Northwestern Africa and quickly launch into Iberia. And when they do, they not only, of course, famously swallow up uh, the uh, small fledgling territory uh, held by Rodrigo Diaz de Bivar in Valencia, but they also push further north. And they do so with enough momentum that there's a real kind of counter push. There are enough instances, for example, that a series of small conquests around Zaragoza, because the city itself and defeats to Alfonso's forces on other frontiers had weakened him enough that he couldn't make a direct attack on Zaragoza. So instead, and here's where this map becomes particularly useful, we can see that there's a series of fortresses and smaller conquests encircling Zaragoza, right? What Alfonso is doing is, is creating a series of, of posts in which he can encircle Zaragoza, cut off its supply lines, ensure that counter forces aren't able to get in and slowly collapse in until eventually taking Zaragoza itself. One of the things that he's particularly keen on doing is ensuring that when he captures a place, he fortifies it, populates it, and he'll very quickly, and here's where a lot of the records uh, that are preserved from in the Crown of Aragon can be very useful for us, giving particular privileges to townsfolk. Now, municipal fueros are something we're going to talk a lot about. Um, and here I'm just using the modern Spanish fuero because it's a lot easier than all of the different regional vernaculars. So forgive my simplification uh, and streamlining of linguistic continuities. But municipal fueros, law codes, not only guaranteed certain rights and privileges, especially judicial and due process questions for the inhabitants, but they also, in exchange, 
formulated a specific set of requirements for military service. In each of the places where Alfonso is, is founding these places, he'll say, you only have to pay this tax to keep the wall up if you're not serving in my armies. This many guys on foot, this many guys on cavalry need to come join the armies for this amount of time, which will muster at this date. Now, often those muster details are lost, but we do have generally the larger text of the Fuetos because they get expanded, they get advised, they get changed over time. Creating all of this military inertia really eventually gives him the upper hand. He's able to take Zaragoza later, but herein lies the problem. He's got a signal victory. He's got a number of smaller conquests, all of which are creating a ton of momentum, all of which are also coinciding with the advance of the counties of Barcelona to his east. But you would think, doing all this swashbuckly manliness, he would have time to start a family. At some point, work's caught up enough. We've got a little bit of time in the camp. You know, siege takes six months, nine months, sometimes in Iberia. And lo and behold, eh, six, nine months, not a bad uh, spurt. However, for a variety of strange reasons, Alfonso never has children. And in his will, rather than leave it to a particular nobleman, and here we can return to where we began, he leaves it to the order of the temple and the hospital. Now, some scholars have argued that giving his kingdom to two military orders was a stunt, a religiously inspired stunt to get the nobles off his back and to create a situation where rather than fighting over his body, his larger program of conquest could continue. There's a certain logic to this, right? The temple and the hospital, although they're nominally defensive organizations, were quickly becoming more and more formal, offensive, capable units in the East, and were growing and expanding in, in the wider Mediterranean. That's not to say that they didn't have something of a foothold in the Iberian Peninsula, but they weren't certainly anything like what they would be 50 years later, right? There's no Renaud de Chatillon wandering around starting wars of his own accord. Instead, what might also be the case is that by giving his territories over to these military orders, he would force someone else to come up with a solution. But why doesn't he have children? Now, there are a number of theories. The first, the sort of Richard the Lionheart theory, is that, well, he's probably actually gay. He likes being in camp too much. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Unfortunately, we've got enough echoes of mistresses that that one, if it's true, well, then we have some other questions about his mistresses, but nevertheless, we should maybe ask whether or not that's perhaps a bridge too far, right? This is one of those instances where it's entirely possible, but without proof positive, it's a little unlikely. It's also possible that he was simply not that sexualized a person, right? That he was asexual, or at least more on that end of the sort of Keynesian spectrum um, than, than most medieval monarchs were, or that he took that obligation less seriously than his military concerns. It's possible, although again, the prevalence of mistresses suggests maybe not. Where he perhaps is, is most likely um, to, to have uh, laid some blame on this larger question of the succession is whether he was sterile. Um, this is, of course, a possibility, right? There, there are all kinds of reasons, not least of which injuries, um, dietary concerns, environmental concerns, all of which could have contributed um, to poor fertility rates. Now, all of this is admittedly a little bit of an excursus, and, and it's maybe a little bit more navel-gazing than we would normally want to do in a historical context. But the fact that he doesn't have any heirs is a little bit remarkable, especially considering the frequency with which his, his uh, ancestors and, and his, uh, his 
descendants, albeit through his brother, um, the frequency with which there are lots of surviving children and, and with which this seems to have played an important role. And given the long term of his conquests and his picking off individual places, suggests that perhaps something else is going on here. So how do you make the best of a bad situation? You make the best of a bad situation by marrying Ramiro, uh, your brother, um, in the aftermath of a, a, a dead king like Alfonso, to Agnes of Aquitaine, um, a French noblewoman of, of good uh, standing. They give birth um, to a daughter who marries Alfonso's neighbor and sometimes rival, um, Ramon Berenguer, the Counts of Catalonia, and their son, Alfonso II, later takes over. It's that Alfonso II whose kingdom is reorganizing, is growing and changing in a period of such enormously dynamic figures uh, that we eventually get an old man wandering down from the mountain wearing the tatters of armor. So if we've got a guy who fights a civil war against his wife and about whom in the period, there are allegations of what even by medieval standards marked out as spousal abuse. And if at the same time, he seems to be far more interested in inflicting violence on his enemies, does that make him a hero? By some medieval estimates, you might argue that someone who is so concerned by the kinds of conquests that will expand his kingdom, that will expand the boundaries of his religious community, that all of this military focus is, is the proper prerogative of a king. A later king in the 13th century by the same name, Alfonso X, will comment in, in his many works, but especially the Especulo and the uh, Siete Partidas, that kings are supposed to lead armies, but they're also supposed to be lawgivers, lovers of justice, the raisers of princes. And herein lies a bit of a challenge. Can we regard Alfonso the battler as a kind of villain? Not because of what he did or didn't do, but rather the sum total of the things he didn't do, right? Not the actions or inactions in, in all of these different places. And here's the, the check and here's the X, here's the smiley face, here's the frowny face across this broad spectrum. But because of how much was left undone, how many laws were left unwritten, how many big diplomatic alliances were not celebrated, how many cardinals when they visited the, the peninsula were not given the full audience to attend to matters of religious discipline. All of these things present an interesting challenge for us. In cases like Alfonso the Battler, he's regarded as the kind of founder of a new push uh, of Christian versus Muslim wars. There are many who would say, well, he's the first to stand up for Christianity in the peninsula. And although that's a convenient mistruth and, and perhaps one of the origin points for, for modern day Catalan separatisms, there are nevertheless a few instances where we can really kind of point to him as a, as a figure who is not all that strange. Right? He's caught up in crusading. He's caught up in population efforts. He's caught up in settlements and political payments. He's caught up in attempting to make something bigger and better. And in that regard, he's very much a 12th century monarch. What we also know is that all of the sum total of his kingdom is effectively a failure. Although he, he does conquer Zaragoza and adds so much territory, the sacrifice for all of this is the dynastic unity that would have created an independent or, or co-dependent Aragon, Aragon and Nevada that would have pushed further to the south, that, that the Catalan counties of Barcelona would have retained their still Southern French orientation, that they would have been more reliant on settlers from the Toulousain or from Provence, their connections to the French monarchy than they would have been to their other peninsular neighbors. Instead, Alfonso's inability to secure a succession 
tied those two kingdoms together, creating for a while one of the most important power bases in medieval Liberia. In fact, the crown of Aragon uh, only a century later under James I will expand enormously, recapturing the Balearic Islands, taking Valencia and Murcia. And for a while, James was even one of the most well-respected crusaders in the medieval world. The Pope himself had invited James of Aragon to the Council of Lyon to advise on how to get crusades to actually be successful, uh, as they had been in the Iberian, in the theaters where they hadn't been, nominally in the Holy Land and in Northeastern uh, Europe. But all of that was still very much on the horizon in the time of Alfonso the Battler. And we, we would perhaps be wrong to give him too much credit for those things. Nevertheless, he's very much a figure of his era. He's heroic in occasions. His conquests are certainly heroic for those who would admire him from within his kingdom. They're also a little bit villainous. The Banu Hud and Zaragoza were both an enormously important and influential regional power base, had been responsible for enormous literary and cultural production, were one of the real success stories of the Taifa period. On the one hand, his inability to produce an heir created the political situation that tied the counties of Barcelona into the fortunes of medieval Liberia generally. On the other hand, his earlier efforts to secure an heir had created a civil war with the largest other Christian uh, kingdom in the region and had made them both more vulnerable uh, to the advances of the Almoravids. So, as is often the case, historical figures are messy like this. Nick. They're both a hero and a villain. They're both good guys and bad guys, not only depending on which side you're on, but which side they're on at any given moment in a variety of different issues. That's a short version, an overview of some of the story of Alfonso the Battler. There's some really great work that's been done um, about his kingdom. Most of it is in, is in modern Iberian languages. But I would particularly recommend there's a big section in Peter Linehan's History and the Historians of Medieval Spain that's particularly good. There are also large sections in other survey histories. O'Callaghan's History of Spain is particularly good. There's also an excellent section in Bernard Riley's contribution to the Blackwell series of histories of medieval Liberia called The Contest of Christian Muslim Spain. And although that book's a little bit dated, it's nevertheless quite good, especially about some of this bigger macro narrative. There's also a, a sizable section, of course, uh, in Brian Catlos's Kingdoms of Faith, as well as in his other um, book, there's some mention in his book, Infidel Kings and Unholy Warriors, another popular uh, treatment by Catlos. That's, that's quite good. Um, that's what I can think of, of emptying from my head, um, like a, a, a Matus jumping out of Zeus. Nick, do you have any other axe blows that might uh, elucidate some of this, some questions you wanted to ask about Alfonso? When it comes to Alfonso the Battler, this complicated figure in the history of medieval Iberia, oftentimes we see that childhood creates whoever the figure becomes. And my question is, when we look at Alfonso the Battler, who were the most influential figures in his childhood? One of the things that we know is that Alfonso the Battler is very much a part of the wider world that he's participating in. Um, so we know that he's around his brother and his father. Um, we know that because he's an illegitimate son, there's always sort of an ambition that needs to happen. Not to say that illegitimate sons couldn't inherit the throne in, in medieval Liberia. They certainly can, um, especially if you run out of other options. Um, but we know that he's very much a part of this wider world. There is some evidence to suggest um, that he's participating in the early campaigns led um, by Rodrigo Diaz de Bivar, 
especially in and around Zaragoza, that he might have been part of those mercenary armies. Not unusual. We have other examples of of kings as princes um, participating in, in similar military efforts, albeit later the evidence is stronger. So that's certainly a part of it. We also can can very easily point to figures like um, the the courtiers around his father um, that that seem to suggest that there's. So in the period, Nick, there's a really kind of big push from Rome to the Iberian principalities to really bring them into the fold more, right? And this isn't just, uh, the most famous example is, of course, the liturgical changes that, that Rome wants. They want the mass to be in a particular order, which is different than the way the Iberians have been doing it since the, the fourth or fifth century, in part, but not exclusively influenced by the changeover from the Arian liturgy in the fifth and sixth centuries. They really want to get people more involved. Uh, and part of that comes with a push for more monastic continuity, right? Monasteries are often the easiest vehicle to transmit enormous amounts of culture. And because of their important spiritual role, monasteries are often a place where young um, princes are, are taught you know, to read and write and do those sorts of things. Um, of course, their military training wouldn't happen in a monastery under normal circumstances, but maybe on their lands. Um, one of the, the monasteries where we can see Alfonso the Battle are forming real connections is a place called Siresa, um, S-I-R-E-S-A. Um, it, it's not, it's, an, it's a monastery that's historically important, but it's not one of those places that if you were to ask, you know, what are the 10 monasteries I need to see in Liberia? It's not one of the ones I'm going to put at the top of the list. Um, that's not to mean that, that it's not beautiful. Um, but there's, there's some suggestion as well that when his brother is king, he's he's a part of um, some of his brother's attempts and conquests, um, wars in Huesca, for example, um, which are not too far away from their ancestral power base, that play a role. I think in a lot of ways, what we should really be sort of suspecting um, of Alfonso the Battler is that he intended to play uh, a big role as a kind of lieutenant to his brother, right? That's the kind of position he's being set up for, for being like the best general and, and his helper. Um, we know later, uh, perhaps inspired by the knights, um, hospital and, and temple, the knights of the hospital and temple, that he founds his own military confraternity um, called Belchite, which is a kind of early Iberian military order. Um, and it may very well be that, that that's in part because he's been sort of raised in a more monasticizing environment. And so he's more comfortable with military confraternities like the temple and the hospital and eventually Belchite than he is in the more explicitly aristocratic and, and lay society. Of course, that distinction doesn't really exist in the medieval world, right? There, there's always a very permeable boundary between lay and, and monastic. Um, but those are perhaps some of the influences that kind of shape him as a young man prior to his kingship. And then when he, he's, he's made king after his brother's death, um, there's a real kind of push thereafter. My last question, I want to talk about mortality. Mm -hmm. and Alfonso the Battler. As we approach the end of his life and his death, do we know anything about how he actually died? One of the, the challenges here um, really is that <laughs> one of the things um, that's really clear about his life and death um, is that in his final campaigns, um, he is unsuccessful. Um, he, he's able to take a few more territories in 1134. Um, some estimates say that he's with a couple hundred soldiers um, when one of his territories is captured. Um, he dies, uh, I think it's something like two or three months later 
um, after that fortress falls. So there's some suggestion that he dies from from wounds uh, inflicted in the battle. It's entirely possible um, that you know sort of lasting strain is there. Um, the other thing is that you know we don't we don't exactly um, know when he was born. We've got a pretty good idea that's sometimes 1073, 1074-ish, right? Which means that um, in 1134, when he dies, he's maybe 60, right? And, you know, I mean, not to be too a lion in winter about this, but, you know, there is a certain, my God, I'm, I'm alive, king, and 50 all at the same time. And 60 is good innings for a medieval monarch, especially one who we know is constantly on the battlefield, um, which means living in the camp, which means camp diseases, which means poor nutrition, even for a king, right? 60 is good innings. So if he is wounded or even, you know, just really roughed up in that siege, right? If, if there's sort of the lingering effects of malnutrition, 60 is still pretty good innings. Um, so I, I haven't seen anywhere that says, you know, um, uh, his, his bones um, before the civil war uh, were at a monastery in, in reliquaries. Of course, um, some of the, in, in some of the defeats, um, in the, the skirmishes between Franco's forces and the anarchists, there are a lot of, of damage to a lot of monasteries because, of course, um, the Republic often used churches, thinking that Franco wouldn't dare actually attack churches to hide their families. Of course, this is the famous case in Siguenza um, when that church is firebombed. Um, it didn't have a roof until the late 60s. Um, there were a number of instances uh, where there's this considerable damage. So we can't look at his relics and say like, okay, well, here's this sword wound that's perimortal. So probably that's the wound that kills him, right? Um, but, you know, he is 60. He had been defeated a few months earlier. I think it's reasonable to suggest that he either died from the wounds or that the lasting impact that, that really, I mean, 25, 30 years of active campaigning plus, the earlier campaigns about which we can't always trace his participation, right? So there's a solid amount of, of back and forth, I think, that we can kind of put put at his feet as far as what kills him is, is a lifetime of war fighting. Um, and whether it's the lifetime or the war fighting, I think uh, there's no way to really determine definitively. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today at the Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages for our series on heroes or villains of medieval Iberia. Dr. Lincoln has guided us through a very controversial and complicated figure, and that is Alfonso the Battler. Be sure to comment your thoughts in the thread below. Is he a hero, a villain, both, complicated? Let us know what you think. And without further ado, Dr. Lincoln, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Nick. I uh, will, of course, See you for the next episode. I can't send an imposter wearing, you know, tattered remnants of my clothes coming down from the mountains. Um, but I'll be the real thing uh, next time. Uh, and I'll see you there. And to my subscribers, definitely check out the links in the video description below. It's going to take you to all of the awesome work that Dr. Lincoln is doing to better educate people like me and you on the subjects that we all love. And when it comes to crusades, medieval Iberia, what is there not to enjoy studying? And so thank you all so much and have a wonderful day. Oh.